Welcome to Aghast at the Past, 1892, and happy Valentine's Day. So we've got our typical dark matter to get to today. But before we do, I thought it might be enjoyable to find an article about Valentine's Day and find some perspective about how the holiday was viewed by period Americans. There were a couple of articles off of the National Wire Service sprinkled through newspapers that went in-depth into the origins of St. Valentine's Day. But that's easy for us to find on our own. I wanted to find a local paper's take on the holiday, and I found one. In the San Francisco Examiner, page 9. The title of the article? St. Valentine's Day. Its observance is largely a thing of the past. The Valentine dealers were not busy yesterday, and there were few Valentines sold. A leading curio store on Market Street sold most of the Valentines. There was a pretty large stock there, and along in the afternoon the counters were fairly well crowded by pretty girls, just budding into womanhood, and elderly people who came to buy for their children. Stores elsewhere did very little business. Only in a few places were the valentines displayed in the windows, though when one got inside he usually found a variety. Nearly all of the dealers spoke of a striking fall-off in trade. The observance of St. Valentine's Day was, they stated, rapidly becoming a custom of the past. Sales had decreased from year to year. Until now, they ordered but a few valentines, where formerly they used to get hundreds and thousands. Up to six o'clock, there had been but a small quantity of valentines delivered at the post office. E.W. Peabody, assistant superintendent of the City Division of Delivery, said his forces were not 15 minutes behind their regular work. So small had been the contributions for the mail clerks to handle. He added, however, that many of the costly valentines never came to the office, but were dispatched by special messengers. But it's a decaying fashion, continued he. The day is not observed as it used to be. I came into this office five years ago. The valentine business had fallen off a good deal when compared with what it once was. But year by year since then, it has gradually decreased. There we used to have thousands upon thousands of pieces of such matter to handle. We now have next to none. Some of the valentines in the stores were very pretty and costly, running in prices from $3 to $10 each. Few of these were sold, however. The variegated red, blue, green, and yellow valentines, the kinds which used to be displayed so freely in every country store, were sold as cheap as 18 for 5 cents. Others were 3 for 5 cents, and they ranged from that up. Among several original designs was one of a neat silk-covered and embroidered box in which, securely fastened diagonally by ribbons, was a small bottle of glue. At the side of the glue in the bottom of the box was this inscription. Though many hardships you go through, I, like a friend, will stick to you. Another valentine representing apparently an ordinary ball program had upon its front page in silver the raised figure of a dog. Immediately under the animal were the words, a moving tail. 
as the interested inspector turned the leaf, his eyes fell upon some tearful verse, and immediately the tail of the dog in full view began to wag. It is the Christmas cards that have ruined St. Valentine business, said one dealer. Before they came into vogue, we sold a great many valentines. Now the trade is knocked to pieces. As the Christmas card became popular, the custom of sending valentines fell into disuse. In two or three years more, the way it looks now, there will be no trade in valentines. Another Valentine's-themed event took place through the Northeast and part of Midwest America, reported the papers, including the San Francisco Examiner, page 1, to the delight, I am sure, to lovers of romance. February 13th. A gorgeous illumination of the heavens was visible tonight in cities over a thousand miles apart. It was one of the most wonderful exhibitions of aurora, or northern lights, ever seen from the American soil. The phenomenon stretched over a great belt of territory, from Iowa to the Atlantic coast. The magnificent spectacle was scientifically observed at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. According to the article, the northern lights were red rose in color and absolutely lit up the skies. However, it added, the display was not appreciated by telegraphers as the aurora greatly hampered the working of wires. Here's a tragic local story. Out of the same paper, page 5. The headline reads, Death quickly parted them. A bridegroom accidentally killed on his way from the church. Oakland, February 13th. The wedding party assembled this evening at the Little Roman Catholic Church at West Berkeley. There was no great pomp, nor was there a throng at the church, but the groom was gay and the bride was blithe, and merrily the party tripped away from the church, after the bride and groom had each promised the other to love and to cherish until death did part. Death parted them almost at the church door and the bride of a few minutes wept over the lifeless body of her husband, bruised by a railroad train. Another one of the wedding party was also killed, Mrs. Silva of Lafayette. Francisco Jose Bispo was the groom. He was a dairy rancher at Lafayette, Contra Costa County, and his lady love was a dark-eyed Portuguese girl scarcely 17 years old. After the blessing of the priest in St. Joseph's Church, the wedding party, which consisted only of the bride and the groom and a few relatives and intimate friends, Mrs. Louise Silva of Lafayette, Mrs. Barcello, a sister of the groom, and her husband with their three children and Manuel Stone, walked to Posen Station to take the Little West Berkeley train for the stockyards, where, at the residence of Mr. and Mrs. Barcello, a wedding supper was to be served, and the young couple were to remain the night. Tomorrow morning, they intended to leave for their bridal trip. There are no 
tomorrows for the young husband. They arrived at the station ahead of time, and with jest and pleasantry, were whiling away the time until the seven o'clock train should arrive. In merry mood, the groom picked up his nephew, aged four years, one of the Barcello children, swung him on his shoulder and trotted with him along the track. Some of the others also strolled along the track, which, near Posen Station, runs through a shallow cut. Bispo and the little boy, Mrs. Silva and others of the party were about 100 yards from the station. When, with a shriek of the whistle, the eastbound train, which does not stop at Posen, dashed along and in a moment was gone. On one side of the track lay Bispo dead. In his still arms lay his little nephew, alive but badly wounded. On the other side of the track lay the body of Mrs. Silva. All three had been struck by the train. How the pitiful tragedy occurred, none of the surviving and uninjured members of the party can explain. In an instant, the train appeared. In another, it was gone. Evidently, Bispo with the wife and Mrs. Silva were walking toward the approaching train and were dazed by the sudden appearance of the headlight. In the shallow cut are three sets of tracks, and there were plenty of room for them to step aside. Either they mistook the track on which the train was approaching, or else were paralyzed by fear. The bodies of the dead lay by the side of the tracks, no one lifting them away from the roadbed until Deputy Coroners Hart and Evers arrived from Oakland. The bride sat on the ground by the side of the body of her husband, dumb with grief. When the coroner's men lifted the body into a coffin, the girl, who was bride and widow in an hour, gave a cry as though wounded in the heart and threw herself into the coffin, taking the still face of her lover into her hands and kissing again and again the irresponsive lips. Her wedding gown was streaked with blood from her husband's body and defiled by dirt that came from his garments. For a moment, she was unmolested, and then the coroner's men led her to one side while the coffin lid was screwed down. Next, an article out of the Patterson Sunday News in New Jersey about a really rotten business owner in Cincinnati getting exposure he most certainly did not want. Page 6. The headline? A House of Horrors. One morning last September, a man was found in a door on an alley near Central Avenue in the rear of a dive at 253 West 6th Street. The policeman shook him and found that he had hold of a corpse. The man had evidently been dead several hours. After some days at the morgue, he was identified as John Hicks, a farmer laborer from a short distance east of the city. There was no autopsy, and after the usual inquiries, the police abandoned the search. Then a young man named Ed Witts began a little investigation on his own account. 
he believed that he had been robbed in the dive, the saloon being run by one Nick Delmore. And he wanted revenge. So he cultivated the acquaintance of one Josie Bruce, an occasional inmate of the Delmore place. He won her confidence, and she told her story. And a horrible story it was, of how John Hicks had been drugged and robbed, how Nick Delmore and his bartender, Johnny Ryan, laid him in a secluded room where he died, and how Nick and one of the girls carried him into the alley and set him up in the door. This was only the beginning of horrors. Ryan, once freed from his dread of Nick Delmore, was eager to tell all about the place. And as girl after girl was arrested, each added her story of crime. For many a year, Cincinnati has not had such a sensation. It is proved that besides the main dive, Nick Delmore and his mistress, Hester Clark, had branch criminal establishments in other parts of the city. They managed a house at 145 Elm Street, where there was a trap in a wardrobe. Down, which no doubt, more than one unfortunate has been hurled. 20 years ago, a Kentuckian named Curry entered one of her dens and was never seen again. In the cellar of another, human bones were found. Each new discovery added new horrors and furnished a clue to fresh discoveries. Delmore is an Italian, but has been long in the United States and has served a three years term at Columbus, Ohio for counterfeiting. Morphine was the drug that he used, and he was skillful enough to give, as a rule, only enough to stupefy. The victim would then be robbed and walk to some vacant lot or secluded place to be found next morning, dazed and unable to tell where he had been. The police have a complete directory of the dens in which drugging and robbery was a business, and Delmore and his mistress appear to have been the guiding spirits in all of them. Here is a disturbing tragedy which befell an entire family and a story off the wire. I'll be reading to you out of the Pittsburgh Dispatch, page 7. The headline is Poison in the Biscuit. Salem, Illinois, February 13th. One death from poisoning and six more possible is the record of a mysterious affair south of here. Immediately after eating supper at their home last night, James Morton and his two daughters became very ill. Mr. Morton died early this morning. The two girls, though still alive, are very ill. Breakfast was prepared for the doctor and friends who were aiding the sick. In a few minutes, Dr. Green, ex-supervisor John English, and two neighbors were writhing in agony. One of the ladies, who had eaten less heartily than the others of some biscuit, gave the alarm, and physicians were summoned from town. The coroner and state's attorney also went to investigate. 
This afternoon, it was learned that suspicion had fallen upon Foy Parkinson, a young man of the vicinity. He is charged with having placed poison of some at present unknown character in the family flower barrel for the purpose of killing the entire family because one of the girls had refused to receive calls from him after he had served a term in the Chester Penitentiary for theft. So far, no more deaths have as yet occurred, though the victims are not yet out of danger. So the murder case against Alice Mitchell for killing her rumored lover, Frida Ward, has been moving cautiously forward in recent days as both sides built their cases. Rumors abounded, of course, uh, especially regarding the nature of the relationship between the two young women. Lily Johnson, the poor young woman who had just happened to be driving the buggy that carried Alice Mitchell to and from the murder scene, was still in jail with Alice. And Miss Johnson's father, Missouri's Shelbina Democrat reported, was concerned that Alice was trying to seduce his daughter. The paper went on to claim that Alice's mother had been mentally unbalanced before she gave birth to Alice. And after the birth, she went insane. The paper declared the case one of perverted sexuality. Another paper, Virginia's Norfolk Weekly, called the relationship one of animal love and offered a backstory on how their relationship had developed prior to Alice cutting Frida's throat on a busy street in broad daylight. The language is dramatic and embellished in parts to make the story as titillating as possible. So keep that in mind as I read an excerpt. Alice Mitchell is one of three daughters and the most beautiful of the three. She is strikingly beautiful, has large, lustrous blue eyes, a wealth of golden hair, and her features are faultless. She has not yet gone in society, being only 18 years old. Frida Ward, her victim, was the opposite to Alice Mitchell in all things. Alice's hair was light, while Frida's was brown. Frida had large brown eyes. Her figure was slender, and there was about her a certain air of timidity. One was bright, joyous, impulsive, and full of life. The other was timid, apathetic, and shrank from anything that one might designate as fast. The two girls met each other at school. They became close friends. Alice was the older by two years, and Frida always looked to her as a superior. The teachers saw the passionate regard Alice had for Frida and tried to separate them, but Alice was obdurate and declared that unless Frida was her companion, she would have nothing to do with anyone else. All this happened when the two girls were in short skirts. Two years ago, Frida left Memphis and dwelt on her father's plantation near Goldust, Arkansas. Alice could scarcely bear the separation. 
and protested in daily letters to Frida that she could not live without her. She implored her to return to Memphis and become a member of her father's family. Alice insisted that rather than be away from Frida, she would marry her and be her slave during her life. Last summer, Alice secured permission to visit Frida, and she hailed it with wild delight. On the plantation, the two girls were inseparable. They were as lovers and had their daily lovers quarrel, which always ended by a renewal of love. If any young man made a remark to Frida, Alice became furiously jealous. As for herself, she said, all of her love was for Frida, and the attentions of young men were as nothing to her. Mrs. Volma, Frida's sister, protested at last against this undue intimacy. Alice, she thought, was too wild to be Frida's companion and her temperament was too irascible for the timid, shrinking Frida. Alice did have a terrible temper and could brook no opposition. Once, a pet spaniel jumped into her lap and soiled her dress, and the girl seized a club and dashed out the dog's brains. She also had a weakness for firearms, shooting and riding horses without a saddle or bridle. Alice returned after a lengthy visit, and then Mrs. Vollmer informed her mother that the intimacy between the two girls must cease. Frida acquiesced with a murmur, but Alice was furious. Life, she said, would not be worth living without Frida. She wrote to her, but the letter was returned with the seal unbroken. This was a heartbreaking blow. Alice grew morose and would have little to say to anyone. She was no longer the bright and joyous girl of yore. A few weeks ago, Frida and her sister Joe came to Memphis to visit their friends, Mrs. Kimbrough and Miss Christina Purnell. But Frida was warned by Mrs. Vollmer to have nothing to do with Alice Mitchell, to receive no visits or letters from her, and to cut her on the street should they meet. The day following the arrival of the two sisters, Alice called to see them, but was informed that they were not at home. This was a stunning blow to Alice, and she became almost delirious with grief, but did not desist from her attempts to make it up with Frida. She wrote her several letters, but all save one was returned to her. This one was opened by Frida, and in it she was informed by Alice she would rather see her dead than an enemy. Frida was obdurate, and Alice then tried to meet her on the streets, but the timid girl avoided her. Monday morning, Frida and her sister Joe started to the boat to return to Goldust. They were accompanied by Miss Christina Purnell. Miss Mitchell evidently knew of their intention, as about three o'clock, she went to the house of Lily Johnson 
and invited her to go buggy riding. Miss Johnson complied, and for this ride, she languished in jail. Miss Mitchell caught sight of the three girls and followed slowly behind in the buggy. The ward girls and Miss Purnell bowed to her coldly as they passed in front of the custom house en route to the riverfront. Miss Mitchell quickly rode up to the custom house curbing and told Miss Johnson to hold the horse as she wished to bid Frida goodbye. She hurried down the hill. Frida she met first. Quick as a flash, she pulled a keen razor, her father's, from under her cloak and made a slash at Frida. Joe, turning quickly around, saw the gleaming razor poised, about to be buried in her sister's neck, and raising her umbrella, struck Alice over the head with it. Alice darted at her, and with one blow, almost severed her jugular vein. Turning quickly, the infuriated woman rushed on Frida, who was running toward a railroad watchman, caught her, turned her around, and struck her three blows in rapid succession. The last blow severed an artery and cut the girl's throat from ear to ear. Miss Mitchell was found at her home. Her father asked her who killed Frida Ward, and the young lady mildly answered, I did it, Papa, with your razor. So to say that period readers were fascinated by this case is an understatement. Unlike in the Tina Davis case, the mystery was not who did it. That was clearly known. There was no question that Alice murdered Frida. Instead, people wondered why. And the idea that one woman might fall in love with another was strange and confusing to late 19th century sensibilities. So the inevitable array of scientists, doctors, and alienists were called forth to offer their opinions and the latest science on the matter. And in every article I've read, the conclusions were all along the same lines. Alice Mitchell was insane. Alice Mitchell was sick. Alice Mitchell was improperly educated. Every external evil that may have touched her in her life was considered a possible reason for her feeling the way she did about someone of the same sex. I will continue with occasional updates on the Frida Ward case, of course, until it reaches a conclusion. In the meantime, keep the kerosene lamp lit and the doors locked. Happy St. Valentine's Day. Until next time.